Hello and welcome to the segment Questions, Questions. I'm Rachel. And I'm Sarah. We're part of a team of volunteers making a podcast about the legacy of Endell Street Hospital. Endell Street was a military hospital in the Covent Garden area of London in World War I. It was run entirely by women. The two women who started the hospital in May 1915, Dr Flora Murray and Dr Louisa Garrett Anderson, were suffragettes. They were members of the Women's Social and Political Union, the group founded by Emmeline Pankhurst in 1903 to campaign for the women's vote. The hospital's motto was the suffragette slogan, Deeds, not words. The staff of Endell Street were female surgeons, nurses, orderlies, dentists, drivers and clerks. They came from all over Britain, from Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the USA. We know a lot about some of the women, for example, Flora Murray and Louisa Garrett Anderson, surgeon Vera Scantlebury, pathologist Helen Chambers and orderly Nina Last. Vera Scantlebury, for example, was one of five women who came to Endell Street from Australia, where the wartime government had refused to enlist female doctors. They're not female nurses. Vera wrote numerous letters home describing her experience. Like other women doctors of her generation, she had worked primarily with women and children. Until she travelled to London, she had been senior medical officer at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. In London, like her male and female counterparts in other military hospitals, her own younger brother included, she had to learn to be a surgeon. By May 1917, she was in charge of two surgical wards and working as primary surgeon rather than assistant. By the time it closed, 7,000 operations had been performed at Endell Street Military Hospital. We know a bit less about Helen Chambers. She was a distinguished student. At the age of only 24, she was appointed head of pathology at the Royal Free Hospital in London. During the war, she successfully trialled a new method of wound infection control, BIP paste kept wounds sterile without the need to constantly change bandages. These are just two of the stories about women in a unique hospital which treated 26,000 patients before it closed in December 1919. But what we wanted to know was then what? What happened next to the nearly 200 women who had worked at Handel Street? What difference did their deeds not words make to them and to the status of women after the war? We know that Vera Scantlebury returned to Australia and a series of short jobs in paediatrics and public health. She studied in Canada and America, though was overlooked for jobs which were given to less experienced men. Her married status meant that she was routinely refused full-time roles. Nevertheless, she is remembered for her role in infant health policy in the state of Victoria and earned the OBE for her pioneering work there in 1938. In 1920, Helen Chambers received the CBE for her work on infection control at Endell Street. Before the war, she had been doing part-time research into cancer. After the war, she became a full-time researcher on the use of radiotherapy to treat uterine cancer at a time when male surgeons in Britain favoured hysterectomies. She was instrumental in founding another hospital run by women, the Marie Curie Cancer Hospital in North London. On the face of it, both women achieved considerable professional success. But how typical were the paths women like Vera Scantlebury and Helen Chambers took after the war? We realised that we needed to say something about the gaps in our research because, with notable exceptions, the personal documentation is scant and Endell Street records were lost. After it closed, Endell Street and the memory of women's medical role largely vanished from collective memory about the Great War in Australia as well as Britain. So we decided to look a little more broadly at three topics. Firstly, the nature of research and women's history. Secondly, the experience of women in medicine after World War I. And thirdly, really, how much has changed? 
To help us explore these topics, we have with us author Wendy Moore, who is currently writing a book about Endell Street Military Hospital. Wendy will join our discussion today. We were shocked to hear about this hospital for the first time only weeks ago. How could it have been forgotten? It was in the middle of London, regularly visited by the royal family, and had women travelling from all over the world to work there. Over the past few weeks, we've been working with a handful of highly personal accounts and articles in academic journals. From our perspective, the only reason this history has survived is through biographical accounts, such as Dr Flora Murray's book, Vera Scantlebury's letters, and diary entries. With that in mind, Wendy, what have been the challenges in researching Endell Street and what happened to the women who work there? Well, there are challenges in all historical research, uh, depending on the time period, the subject, the people involved, and a big element of luck as well. So just as background, my first three books are about the 18th century, so there's a lot less material generally from those periods. This book about um, Enter Street Military Hospital, there's a, a far more material available. Lots of people worked there. Some of them left accounts. Some of, some of them wrote letters or left diaries. There are newspaper accounts. There are photographs. So there are some fantastic pieces of material. I think in terms of the research, that's perhaps the biggest problem that there's... Once you start digging, there is a lot of actual material. So it's, it's possible at times to get swamped by it. So there were nearly 200 people who worked at the hospital. There were some 40 or so doctors who were there. There were thousands of patients who were treated there. So potentially I could look at all those different people and try and trace those, which would obviously take me probably decades to do. And I've got a limited amount of time to do my research and write my book. So I need to concentrate on particular people with the best stories to tell and try to use their voices to to tell my story about the hospital and to bring it to life. So really that's my main challenge as a writer of popular non-fiction. I'm not writing an academic book. I'm writing a book that I hope a general reader will want to read and turn the pages. So I need to give it a strong narrative so they want to know what happens next. So really that's been the biggest challenge for me is to find a different person who worked at the hospital to take me through the period of the hospital. So I've done that really by, in one case, looking at Nina Last, who was an orderly there, and uh, left some fantastic letters. And then later on, Vera Scantlebury, who was a surgeon at the hospital, she wrote lots of letters home. So I've used her voices as well. Uh, so, I, so I think really that's it's been the story for me has been the biggest challenge, how to tell it. Bearing in mind we're only familiar with the stories of four women, from your experience and your research, how representative would these stories be of women's lives after the hospital closed? I'm talking about women in medicine. Vera Scantlebury, Nina Last, Flora, Helen Chambers. So three of those were doctors, Helen Chambers, Flora Murray and Vera Scantlebury. Uh, Nina Last was an orderly at the hospital. I think their experiences after the hospital closed are probably fairly typical because they show a range of different uh, experiences after the war. Helen Chambers went on to have a very distinguished career in that she went back to doing cancer research. Uh, she was a, a very um, clever, a very talented um, researcher and uh, she developed ways of using radiotherapy to treat cervical cancer. So she probably had the most glittering career, if you want to call it that. 
Uh, Vera Scantlebury uh, went back to Australia. She wanted to go back into working in a children's hospital, but she couldn't get a job uh, because the mo- most of the jobs were given to men who came back from the war. But she went into child health and um, she pioneered um, infant welfare clinics throughout Victoria, which probably did more in terms of improving child health than than working in a children's hospital. So she actually didn't achieve probably what she wanted to do, but what she was probably more important in terms of improvements in health. Flora Murray, um, Flora essentially ran the hospitals. She was the, the main commanding officer. For five years, she totally gave up her life to running the hospital with a military efficiency, to keeping its staff motivated, to keeping the patients motivated. She worked incredibly long hours in the operating theatre. She was frequently up in the night when convoys came. So she completely devoted her life to that hospital, to making it a success. And after the war, I think she was utterly worn down, really, by her experience and more or less retired. And again, that was a fairly typical thing that women who had worked there as doctors either retired afterwards or or worked in kind of much lower key areas. And you mentioned Nina Last as well. And she'd been a a clever student and obviously very bright woman and um, lots of potential and had worked in the hospital for most of its lifetime. And afterwards, she married and became a mother. And like many of the other women there, I don't think she probably really achieved her true potential. And I think that's actually something we were thinking about, especially with Vera, is um, she couldn't get a job as a paediatrician and went into working in policy um, in terms of infant Mm -hmm. care. And a big question that brought up for me is how much of that was passion, how much of that was pragmatism. You often hear about women operating under the radar And so it's hard to determine whether in some respects that was the most successful she could be, um, given the climate. Well, I think it was perhaps a compromise for her because for several years she applied for jobs at the Melbourne Children's Hospital as a senior doctor, which is the post she'd had before she went off to Endor Street. But she wasn't um, appointed, so that would have been a disappointment to her. She'd always wanted to work with children. But what she did was a more important achievement in many ways. She got married after the war and in Australia, as in Britain, married women were discouraged from working at all and or often they were made to work only part-time. And um, so because she was married, she was only allowed to be titled um, as part-time director of infant welfare services in Victoria, even though she did obviously do a full-time job. Uh, But that's a typical example of the prejudice that women doctors were up against in those periods. But it's hard to know. I don't know what she felt looking back, whether she felt she'd achieved more. She was a very warm personality. She liked working with children and working with um, poorer families. She was a very collaborative person. So I think perhaps she thrived better in leading the infant welfare clinics than maybe she would have done in a hospital. So now we've established this is a difficult area to research. What we still want to ask is, what was the experience of women in medicine after World War I? Um, as you've said, before World War I, female doctors were not allowed to treat men, uh, only women and children, and not to work as surgeons. By 1919, at Endell Street, they'd conducted over 7,000 operations. They trialled innovations in uh, infection control, holistic care. For example, I think they provided headphones for soldiers who weren't able to move. The founders, as well as a number of the other women who'd worked at the hospital, were awarded medals for their work. So 
it was shocking for us to discover that after the doors of the hospital had closed, so did a lot of the opportunities for female doctors. As you mentioned, Vera Scantlebury, she'd been working as a, a surgeon in a military hospital, but when she got back to Australia, she couldn't get a job, not even in the field that she'd left. Why do you think that this was the case? These women had more than proved themselves. Why were the doors closed? Well, as you say, before the First World War, women doctors were mainly concentrated in treating women and children. So uh, mainstream hospitals wouldn't appoint women. Most medical schools did not educate women. So women had mainly been trained in, in medicine at the London School of Medicine for women. And the Royal Free Hospital was one of the very few hospitals which took women in training posts. And most hospitals, women were not appointed to posts. So there was huge discrimination really led by the medical profession. During the war, all these doors opened, so women were encouraged to go to mainstream medical schools. They were appointed to jobs in hospitals because the men had gone to war, so women were needed. Obviously, they were given Endell Street Military Hospital to run. So during the war, it was clear that women doctors could do exactly the same jobs as men. So that argument couldn't be used any longer. That was repeated by newspapers, by leaders of the medical profession as well. So I think during the war, women doctors more or less expected that when the war ended, they would be able to carry on doing these jobs. Lots more women had been encouraged to go into medicine during the war to train as doctors because they'd seen women doing these jobs. But when the war ended, naturally, the male doctors came back from the front and they wanted their jobs back. So I think that's a difficult issue, isn't it? Because those men had given up their jobs in hospitals and in general practices to serve in the war. So they wanted those jobs back. The medical schools closed their doors again to women. Most hospitals, again, stopped appointing women to their posts. So in some ways, it was led by necessity in that male doctors wanted their jobs back. Women were not needed anymore. There was a kind of surplus of women doctors, effectively. But it was basically the main reason was the medical profession closing ranks. So the medical profession was still very male-dominated. They could have done something to insist that medical schools and hospitals did give women equal opportunities, but they closed ranks. Medical schools closed their doors. Hospitals closed their doors as well. So I think it's the male medical profession that is to, to blame for that. And it carried on for many, many decades after that. It was only in the 1940s when the NHS came into being that medical schools had to admit women for the first time, but for a long time a lot of them had a quota of women, so they would only allow 20% of students would be female. There's no logic to that whatsoever, it was simply uh, discrimination. Um, a lot of hospitals would appoint women but when they got married, they had to give up those jobs. So there was a marriage bar. Again, absolutely no logic to that. And even though women have, well, since the Sex Discrimination Act in 1975, all jobs and medical schools have to be equally open to women. So it's quite a long time now that uh, medical schools have had a majority of women students. So it's obviously very clear that women are more than capable of going into medicine in the same, to the same level as men. And last year, in fact, the medical profession became majority female for the first time. So 
you know, it's taken nearly 100 years for that situation to turn around. But even now, there is still discrimination so that uh, women are underrepresented in uh, higher paid, higher status jobs. So, so in surgery, for example, um, as consultants, and within the medical profession, professional organisations, they are underrepresented as well. So amazingly, the Royal College of Surgeons had their first female president in 2014. It's, it's unbelievable, really. And I think women doctors today would still say that they come up against prejudice, but also difficulties in doing their jobs because of juggling families and other responsibilities as well. We're very, we're very conscious... Um that we've kind of taken quite a negative stance because, as you say, it's absolutely stunning that these women could prove themselves to be as capable as men and then post-war just all the opportunities kind of shut down. But so to kind of flip that, we also wanted to ask if you could think of any particularly positive outcomes from Endell Street's legacy or, you know, a few examples where you really could see it paving the way and making an impact even if it was maybe a, a slow burn. Well, I, th- I think the main legacy of Endell Street was that it did change people's attitudes throughout the war. Well, th- at the beginning of the war, there was a lot of hostility when Endell Street was set up, both within the army and within the medical profession and from some of the newspapers. Um, so they either treated Endell Street with curiosity as a kind of strange sort of extravagance or as kind of comical, really. So a lot of the early newspaper reports at the beginning of the war, they hold Endell Street up as a sort of, you know, sort of the flappers' hospital, you know, the hospital manned by women. And there's lots of humour. And as the war went on, it was treated more seriously. It wasn't even clear at the beginning that they would survive. And a lot of people in the army thought um, and did say, you won't last six months. So they did survive. They did prove that they could do the same jobs as men. They proved that women doctors were eminently as capable as men. That could never be denied. That was proved, that was accepted. Even within the medical profession, they could no longer say that. So I think that's the most important factor, that they proved that, they demonstrated that. Do you think Endell Street made any difference to the status of women in general? It's often said, in fact, that women won the vote because of the contribution of women during the war in all fields, so women working on buses and in munition factories, but also in hospitals. And I think there were other reasons why women got the vote as well. It was politically expedient. But it was a fact that the contribution of women during the war meant that it was impossible to deny women the vote any longer. And the best example of that is Herbert Asquith, who'd been the most staunch opponent of women's suffrage before the war, um, really violently opposed. And during the war, he admitted that he was wrong and that he changed his mind. And it was women working in all these different roles, but particularly in hospitals, I think, particularly nurses and orderlies and women doctors um, in lots of hospitals, that did mean that it was impossible to deny women their equal rights as citizens. In 1918, women over 30 got the vote, so not all women. They couldn't quite be trusted that far. Um, It took another 10 years or so before all women were allowed the vote. But I think, you know, at least it did have that, that effect almost actually makes you question the kind of cyclical nature of history because I'm so you're saying you know these, these women actually physically prove themselves and no one can deny kind of their capabilities and it just instantly makes me think of something like the gender pay gap or the me too movement and thinking mm. no one can deny <laughs> kind of the fact that women get paid less than men despite being equally mm-hmm. capable 
And it just almost makes me wonder how history works in waves. And yeah, as you say, you can blow the doors off, show that we're perfectly capable. And then here we are, however many years later, going through exactly the same argument and the truth is kind of laid out for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, you know, with um, jobs just not being offered to women, like people can pull rank despite the truth coming out. I think that's true. I think that's my experience of historical research throughout the books I've been writing because the first three books I wrote were based on 18th century stories and it was very clear during the 18th century that there were incredibly talented women who were equally good as artists and writers in other fields as men and often did do the work that men were doing but this was um, hidden or, or made invisible. Sometimes credit was taken by husbands or brothers or um, fathers. And in Victorian period, again, where women were very much constrained into particular roles. So writing about Endell Street, obviously I've looked at Louisa Garrett Anderson's mother, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who determined to become a doctor at a time when women were not actually allowed to go into medicine at all. And what's quite incredible really I think is her sheer determination against the odds she fought to get an education and to train and to qualify as a doctor well I think most of us probably would have given up so I'm completely in awe of these women who persevered against all these odds. I wondered whether the hospital's motto deeds not words actually played out after the war it seemed to me that the women actually needed a platform as well as to demonstrate how good they could be at their jobs and better than the men. Well, I I think that's true because the motto, Deeds Not Words, which was a suffragette motto, that was them saying, we're going to take action, we're not prepared to just talk about getting the vote, we're going to actually take action to do that. And, And Louisa Garrett Anderson in particular went to prison for throwing a stone through a window before the war. Endell Street Military Hospital was um, equality in action. They were showing that we've said we can do it, but here's the proof. Here's our um, our work in, in action. So it was deeds and not words, yes. This is our final segment, uh, and we've asked what's changed. Neither of us are medical professionals. Uh, we live in quite different worlds, but there are patterns that we still recognise. When the hospital began, Flora Murray said, you not only have got to do a good job, you've got to do a superior job. So, Wendy, on that note, what sort of reception do you receive as a female author? Have you got to do a superior job? Uh, Interesting question. I think I could probably talk better from my experience as a journalist. I've worked on local newspapers and in magazines and freelance, and I did start out as a crime reporter on local newspapers, which I absolutely loved. I loved um, reporting on crimes and murders and so on. But I was channelled into writing about health. And that was seen as a softer subject. So lots of women journalists have been sort of funnelled towards these softer subjects rather than hard stories like politics and crime and so on. And for me, that that's been fantastic really because um, I think I perhaps just made the most of it and just from writing about medicine I've gone into writing books about medicine so you know I'm, I never I don't regret any of that at all but I think women journalists still struggle to ta- get taken seriously to be obviously paid equal pay in the BBC it's been a big factor and I, I know it's the case too in lots of newspapers 
Um, so women struggle still to get equal rights in employment in um, journalism. As an author, I'm not sure how that pans out. I mean, I'm writing about the First World War now, and that's been traditionally a very male area because it's mainly concentrated, I think, on um, the military experience, on the experience of men in the trenches. But I think it's, as a woman writing about the First World War, I feel it's responsibility basically to talk about women's experiences, but, but take a different view, really, and look at other aspects of the war. And I think Endostreet's a really incredible sort of example of that because the women were doing the same job as, as men. They were surgeons, but they, they were aware that they were doing that job slightly differently, that they focused on nurturing their patients and making it a colourful, bright, cheerful atmosphere, and that they were doing that because they were women and they had a slightly different approach. So I think that's a really important aspect to bring out of um, the story. If we've learned anything from the research, I guess the final and important thing to ask is how do we make sure these stories are remembered in future? How do we make sure that stories about women in medicine in the 21st century are remembered and valued? Well, I hope women will just stand up and keep saying them, and I think women are doing so, like we are here today discussing this. There's a big exhibition currently at the Royal College of Physicians celebrating women in medicine. Yeah, I'm writing a book to celebrate women in medicine. So I, I think now perhaps that women are also in a majority in the medical profession, those women are going to stand up and be counted and we'll hear their voices louder, I hope. Thank you to Wendy Moore for taking the time to discuss these questions. Endell Street Military Hospital is one minute part of women's history. There are female narratives all over the world to be uncovered. If you are interested in doing some of your own research and asking your own questions, we recommend Wiki Project Women, a project addressing the underrepresentation of women on Wikipedia that encourages all users to create new articles about women or improve the content of existing articles about women. The Women's Library in the London School of Economics, where a lot of the research and preparation for this segment was done. English Heritage's Plaques for Women campaign. The organisation is seeking to redress the balance as only 14% of London's blue packs celebrate women. Happy researching and thank you for listening. This is part of a series of Heritage podcasts created by Digital Drama with support from the Heritage Lottery Fund. We would like to thank the project's archive partners, the Women's Library LSE and Camden Borough Archives, as well as Annie Fox, Wendy Moore, Tudor Allen and Dr. Jenny Ann Geddes for taking part in the recordings. We are also grateful to Dr. Heather Sherd and the residents and staff of Dudley Court Sheltered Housing. The volunteers who have worked on the creations of these podcasts were Elise Hill, Mary Marimutu, Annette Baniak, Zoe Gelber, Sarah McLean, Renata Rothwell, Joan Phillips, Ruby Hornsey, Sarah Davidson, Rachel Prosser, and Charlie Foreman. And the readings are by Elise Hill, Freddie Chick, and Sarah McLean. The podcasts were recorded on location at Dudley Court and in the Maiden Lane Community Centre recording studios, with the assistance of Violet MacDonald, and Marianne Larragie from Camden Community Radio. Mm-hmm.